Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You already know what it is. You already love it. It's Victory Lane, of course. Today, we got a milestone. Episode 70. It's more than 50. It's more than 60. It's more than 69. It's nicer. We're paying homage to a living legend. Well, actually not living, unfortunately. Spoiler alert. J.D. McDuffie. Here's my dad with more. Thank you, Duve, and hello, all you party people. For today's NASCAR numerology segment, we say hello to number 70 and pay a fond remembrance to J.D. McDuffie. Over a 27-year career, J.D. raced in the number 70 653 times in the Cup Series without a win. That's the most of any driver even to this day. He was one of the last true independent privateers in the NASCAR garage. He was killed in a horrific crash at Watkins Glen in 1988. Approaching the end of the backstretch there at more than 170, he had a wheel hub failure and crashed head-on into the Armco barrier at full speed. He took out Jimmy Means with him, who crashed into the same barrier while McDuffie's car was airborne above him. He went right under him. Means walked away unhurt, but McDuffie died instantly from a basal or skull fracture. Ironically, the night before McDuffie was killed, he raced in a short track event in nearby Owego, New York, at the Shangri-La Speedway. Isn't that great? Shangri-La Speedway. And he won that race. His death came at a time when increases in horsepower and speed were outpacing safety in motorsports, and not just in NASCAR. Shortly before McDuffie's accident, Tommy Kendall had a similar accident at the same place at the same track during an IMSA race and badly damaged his legs. To this day, he still walks with a limp. It's not a reach to say that McDuffie's accident encouraged the development of the head and neck restraint system, or Hans device, that's now a mandated safety feature in most motorsports series. Unfortunately, its development was too late for McDuffie, along with others like Neil Bonnet, Rodney Orr, Kenny Irwin, and of course Dale Earnhardt. Who knows if any of them would have survived if they had been wearing Hans devices. McDuffie's accident also was the impetus behind changes in the course layout at Watkins Glen. After his death, the inner loop chicane was installed to slow cars down the end of the backstretch there. So we remember and say a heartfelt rest in peace to John Delphus McDuffie. He was a good old boy. That's all for today's NASCAR numerology. Back to you, Doof. Thank you, Dad. Yeah, J.D. McDuffie, one of the one of the good old boys in the sport, gone a little bit too soon, but he was he has a ton of records. I don't know for sure, but I think he may have a record for the most finishes not on the lead lap. There's something about like every single one of his finishes were not on the lead lap or top ten. I, I don't know. Michael Finley of Front Stretch knows that stat, but I, I'm afraid I don't. But, Dad, thank you for paying homage to J.D. McDuffie. Gone too soon. 
I was on site this past weekend in Dover, though, for a doubleheader weekend of racing action. That was fun. Uh, six races in total. Two truck, or excuse me, two cup, two Xfinity, one truck, one Arca East. Lots of stuff to recap from there. Plus, the regular season ends this weekend in Daytona. We got no idea what's going to happen. But we do know the star of the show on this particular episode of Victory Lane. You see the NASCAR Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion, Brandon Thompson, the newly minted VP of DNI, as he will tell you. I've known Brandon for a couple of years going back to Arcane M Pro Series days. And in the midst of George Floyd's killing, Bubba Wallace's activism, NASCAR's progressiveness, Brandon was promoted to this position and it was a new position created. And I think he legitimately could not be a better person for this role. So we get into a lot of it with him, so I won't spoil it. Without further ado, let's get this puppy cranked up with a good old-fashioned Dover doubleheader weekend. Say that five times fast. Denny Hamlin finally earns the victory at the Monster Mile after being winless up until this point in his Cup Series career. This is only one of a few tracks that he had never won at coming in. He finally checked that box off. He's hated it his entire career pretty much. And even though he won here, he still doesn't really love it. Yeah, it has. Uh, it hasn't been my best by any means. But, uh, you know, I've got teammates that are probably the best in the business when it comes to this track. So I just study them and, and try to repl replicate their style at this racetrack and then find out, you know, once I adapt then, then I can give the feedback to tell them what to do with the car. But I could, because I think that my style of driving typically uh, doesn't fit this type of racetrack. So I've I had to adapt uh, more to my teammate style when I come here. He also revealed his preseason goal for wins that he and his crew chief, Chris Gabehart, were kind of tight-lipped about after Kansas. He begins this audio bite by answering if he's ever been in a zone like this, and then <laughs> maybe to his own fault, he revealed that preseason goal. No, no way. I mean, there's been no year where it's been like this. Uh, it's every week. I mean, it's literally every single week. And, you know, we set some lofty goals at the beginning of the year to try to win 10 races. And, you know, it's still achievable. But, I mean, I, we've, we we should have more than six easily. So, I mean, we're just rolling right now. And there's then we're rolling at tracks that we just are not typically great at. And so that gives me confidence. Like, you know, any of these tracks where – we go back to for the second time um, and we have information that we've got from the previous races. Chris just dials, dials it in and, and really does a good job with the race car. So, you know, our process uh, is working right now and, and our, my preparation is working and uh, it's all paying off. Wow. How about that? 10 races. That's pretty lofty, <laughs> but I think that it's realistic, especially when you look at things now. He's got six. He needs four more to reach that goal, and there's, what, 11 more races? He can realistically get there. So here's Gabe Hart himself on why they decided to set that goal and also why, in his mind, that goal is not unrealistic at all to expect. <laughs> well, if he let the cat out of the bag, then then uh, I can go ahead and say, now you know how important Bristol and, and Indy was to us, right? Those are two that we had and got away from us, so... Uh, you know, 10 is just a nice round number, and, and it's it's something that's hard to do. Uh, if you look back to the last time it was done, I'll let you look it up, Bob. I know how you love stats, but it has not been done any time recently. And you look at the name of the names of the guys on that list, uh, not only was it done a long time ago, it was done in a different kind of kind of a different era where the rules book is concerned. 
and um, you know, and it's elite list of guys. And I just have that much confidence in, in Denny's ability. And, you know, I have Joe Gibbs racing and FedEx and, and this team behind me. And, you know, I, there's no reason to set the bar low. I, I, I think we're capable of winning every week. Now it's extremely hard because there's a, there's a ton of good guys, good teams out there that are just as capable. But, um, you know, for me, there's no reason to sugarcoat it. When you got all these resources behind you, um, why not set the bar for the moon? And that's what we've done. So that was on Saturday. Martin Truex Jr. came home in second. Kyle Busch rounded out the top three, had a solid run for a change. That was a 1-2-3 for JGR. Eric Jones did not have a good day. Uh, neither did William Byron. Um, he ran terrible all day Saturday. Him and Chad Canals got into a mini war of words, which is interesting to hear over the radio. But good news for the people that didn't run well. They could do it all over again the next day. And that's exactly what we did. Came back on Sunday. Had a similar looking event. It wasn't really as good as the Saturday show because people use the Saturday show as 311 laps of practice. But you'll get that with doubleheader weekends, especially with no practice or qualifying leading up to the race. But it was the four of Kevin Harvick who swept all three stages, garnered some more playoff points for winning those stages, and wins again his seventh win of the year, one shy of his career high, which he got back in 2018. But Harvick had never won the regular season championship up until this point. In the middle of the race, he clinched that officially, which means an extra 15 playoff points on top of the behemoth amount that he already has. So he's going to go into the postseason with no less than 57 playoff points. That is a new record. I think Martin Truex Jr. held the prior record in 2017. Harvick has now beaten that record. And there's a first for everything. This one is him winning the regular season title. Well, it's something that we've never done before. So, you know, anytime you can do something for the for the first time is is definitely, um, you know, fun to accomplish. And, and I think in, in this instance, it definitely uh, pays dividends in, in the playoff points. And, and look, that's that's really what you want to accomplish in, in the regular season is to gain as many uh, playoff points as you can. We've done that by winning races. We've, we've done that by, um, um, you know, we've, we've done that in a number of different ways uh, throughout the year of, of just trying to, um, you know, be consistent and, and make up days that, that, um, you know, things aren't going good and make finishes out of them. So it's been, you know, it's been a, you know, great 25 weeks and, and hopefully we can have a good week in Daytona and, and see where it all falls after that. Also during the race, he surpassed another couple milestones, 15,000 laps led in his career and 1,000 on the season. He had never reached 1,000 in his 13 years with RCR. And I think since he's gotten to SHR at the start of 2014, he's reached that milestone, I believe all but one or two seasons. And on the list of 15,000 laps led, the people on that list are <laughs> insane. Um, everybody on that list is either retired passed away or in the Hall of Fame, and the only two that aren't are Kyle Busch, multi-time champion, and Jimmy Johnson, the GOAT. So I think that's pretty solid company if I do say so myself. Denny Hamlin, honestly, is probably close to putting himself on that list as well. But being in that elite group, you could start a legitimate argument, and maybe people already have, that Kevin Harvick is not only a top 20 driver, not only a Hall of Famer, but you could argue this guy legitimately, tell me I'm wrong, that he's a top 10 driver of all time. You really could when you look at the stats of things and he's shown no signs of slowing down whatsoever. Let's get his thoughts on what it's like to join that group of drivers. Hey, Kevin, going off the uh, 15,000 uh, laps led in the year, you joined Kyle Busch, Jimmy Johnson, and the rest of the guys on the list 
are Hall of Famers and multiple-time champions. What does it mean to you to be on a list with those type of guys? Yeah, well, I've just been I've been fortunate, um, you know, to to uh, especially over the last seven years, just drive really fast race cars and capitalize on the things that that we've been given. Um, you know, but when you start talking about those lists and, and, you know, the names of the people that you're around and passing and, and whether it's laps led or race wins or whatever the, whatever the category is, it's just an, you know, it's, it's an honor to, to be on those lists and, and be around those guys. So hopefully, hopefully we can keep it going. And I know you said before that as long as fans weren't at the track, you wouldn't be celebrating, but I did see a little burnout on the front stretch. Was that because of Ford's 700th win or what? I just wanted to get back to the pits quicker. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Ronnie Childers is also enjoying the best stretch of his career along with Mr. Harvick. Racking up these points, it's good. But will that be a disappointment if they, A, don't make it to Phoenix, and B, even if they do, if they don't win the championship? Frankly, to him, it might be. That's definitely uh, something that has crossed my mind. and. You know, when you have uh, teams, you know, like the 4 and 11 that have won a lot of races and stacked up a lot of points and done all the right things all year, uh, you kind of want to see those guys fight for a championship, um, you know, whether it was the 4 car or if it was somebody else. You know, if it was somebody else, I would want to see them have a shot at a championship. And, um, you know, th that part is what it is. You know, it it's our jobs to go out there and perform every week and to do the right things and to stay out of trouble and, um, you know, just all the stuff that we've done all year and, you know, that, that's kind of up to us. So, um, you know, yeah, we, we want to make it there and we want to have a shot, but overall, we just got to focus on each round and, and survive. And I think you've heard us talk about that as a team a lot over the, the, uh, six years, uh, of just getting through every round and, and making it to that last race and, and having a shot. And, you know, we've got fortunate enough to win one of them and, um, we've, we've lost a few, so, Overall, hopefully we can get there and, and just, uh, you know, give it our best effort and have a shot at it. MTJ was second on both days, came home with a second-place finish on Sunday. So in eight out of his last nine races, he's finished inside the top three. Unfortunately, has not gotten a win. Early on in the race, Kyle Busch had some issues after Chase Elliott got into the back of him. Elliott wound up uh, DNFing after, like, seven laps. That's because Joey Logano got into Ricky Stenhouse Jr. coming off a of turn four. It caused a big gaggle. Rick Ware Racing finished last in the cup race. They also finished last in the Indy 500, which Takuma Sato won, by the way, under caution. Uh, just add that parenthetically. So they did not have good days, but MTJ is, is flying pretty high right now. Uh, eight of the last nine races, again, finishing inside of the top three. He had five straight third-place finishes, and now I think he's got two seconds in a row. I think he had like a 30th or a 29th in there somewhere, but he had a second before that. So he is rolling on along. Let's talk about Jimmy Johnson for a little bit. His Saturday was okay. Nothing to write home about. But then he comes back on Sunday, runs in the top five, has top five speed legitimately all day, has a pit road speeding penalty, has to work his way slowly and methodically under green flag conditions through the field, bobbing and weaving. And he does it really well, racing his way into the top 10. Got some stage points, I believe, in the second frame. And with about 17 laps to go, Cliff Daniels makes the call of the day, I would say. Nobody was going to beat Kevin Harvick straight up. You were going to have to try something else to beat him. And I don't think the call that he made for two tires instead of four was a race-winning move. I think it was more so a positional gain move because he was behind William Byron at the time where the last caution came out. Called into pit road. Everybody took four tires and fuel. Jimmy took two tires and fuel, 
Restarted as the leader on the high side. Kevin Harvick wound up getting by him after one lap and he cruised to the victory. But Jimmy was able to hold on for third place. That was a positional net gain of about two to three spots, two to three points, especially passing William Byron, his Hendrick Motorsports teammate, who he's now racing for the final playoff spot. So give a call to Cliff Daniels. He made the call to get Jimmy up there and it paid off for them pretty well. And I mentioned that Jimmy's going to be battling his teammate. That's going to be a weird dynamic heading into Daytona. Or is it? Is it just kind of one of those things that happens? Are they going to share any less information? Are they going to approach it any differently? Let's hear from the man himself. Yeah, it's going to be a really interesting race in Daytona from that respect. Um, But at the same time, it's still Daytona. And in my opinion, the big one or all the wrecks that can happen is really going to determine who makes it in the playoffs. So um, we, we did the best that we could here over these two days, had two respectable results, closed the gap, um, but now it's kind of in Luck's hands or in Fate's hand uh, down in uh, Daytona to plate race. I also was curious, you know, after 17 years together, that's longer than most marriages, seven championships, over 80 wins, has there been any trash talk with the crew chief of the 24, of course, being Chad Knauss, because you know that they've got to see each other If it's not in competition meetings at the shop, it's definitely on Zoom. And as he says here on Pit Road sometimes, any trash talk or animosity whatsoever between the two? Hey, Jimmy, I know even though you've had a year before with Chad on another team's pit box, now that you guys are kind of battling weekly for a playoff spot, have you two exchanged any pleasantries or talked any trash down the stretch? (laughs) <laughs> no trash talking, but we did see each other a few times on pit road. Um, neither of us want to be in this position. And I think we both know that, you know, here we are with one race left and it feels like everything is on the line, but we've had 25 races or I've had 24 versus their 25 uh, to not put ourselves in this position. So, you know, I, I think we both reflect back on the year and the, the moments that got away and uh, we'll just go see how a restrictor plate race can settle this thing. Thanks. Best of luck next weekend. Thank you. I like these Cup Series doubleheader weekends overall. I hope we get some more to shorten the season overall. I think you saw Dover had a doubleheader this year. They're probably going to have one race next year. Michigan had two back-to-back this year. Um, You could argue that there's a bunch of different tracks. You don't have to go there twice. You can go there twice in two days, but you don't have to come back day after day or month after month, excuse me. I mean, there's no reason to have two separate dates at Pocono. If you want to have two races there, fine. You can just have them in back-to-back days and do one-day shows for each of them. So I like the concept. I hope we see more of them. Let's briefly touch on the other series that were in town in Dover, the Xfinity Series, Truck Series, and, uh, of course, Arca East. Doubleheader for Xfinity. First race went to Justin Allgaier. Snapped his winless drought, which dated back to last year in Phoenix, But he admits here that he had some serious doubts in the past 18 to 24 months internally. I mean, he heard the noise externally, but internally, that may have gotten to him a little bit. And this one was a really, really big confidence booster for him and his entire number seven team. As as even as successful as we've been, um, it's been tough mentally, physically, emotionally. Um, You know, I, I can tell you that in the last six months... I've probably told my wife 10 times that I'm ready to not be a race car driver anymore, right? I'm ready to figure out what I, what's next in life and just not because I want to quit, not because I, I not because it's too hard or anything like that. I just, you know, you, you get to a point of where you can tell that it's, it's weighing on you in a way that 
uh, isn't beneficial, you know, just not only to myself, but to my wife, to my daughter, to, you know, my family, just, uh, just in general. And so I tell people all the time though, I said, racing is like golf. You're always one hole away from throwing your clubs into the pond and you hit a great approach shot or you, you tee one off really good or whatever. And then all of a sudden golf becomes your favorite sport again. Right. And, uh, and racing is a lot the same way, but, but, but truly, honestly, um, I have great partners, you know, today we had FFA on the car, obviously, uh, but that happened because of brand professional agriculture. We have Unilever, all the Unilever brands that are on our car, um, you know, Chevrolet, the, the Hendrick Engine Shop, you know, everybody that's a part of junior motorsports and, and making this race car go around. And I want to give them the best opportunity to go to victory lane week in and week out. And, and I've always said, if I'm not the guy that can do that, um, then I need to, then I need to step away and, and, uh, you know, today, you know, God works in mysterious ways. You know, when you're when you're down and out and, and probably your lowest, um, you know, it's usually when you when you hear hear him the most. And today was just one of those days. You know, I went into this weekend with a completely different mindset, uh, different attitude. I, I've my wife and my daughter traveled this week, uh, which is which is awesome. I can't wait to get out of here and go over to the hotel. They they're not allowed in the in the uh, in the racetrack, but they're here at the hotel, and, and I can't wait to get over there and give them a big hug and. And it just, uh, truly this, this sport to me is all about family and, and, uh, it's been hard. So today is definitely one that we'll cherish. Interesting stuff from Justin over there. And on that same day, Chase Briscoe had a fast car, but he wound up spinning on the backstretch. I think towards the midpoint of the race had some damage front clip was bent and they wound up rebounding for a top 10 finish. So you know that their car was fast, but it was too damaged beyond repair. So they ended up having to go to a backup car, started in the rear that clearly did not hinder their performance at all because he wanted to prove himself, make up for the wrongs that he did the day before, wins the race, his sixth win of the season, um, I believe first in his career at Dover, and that was a hot rod to end all hot rods. I mean, Denny was really good Saturday, Kevin was really good Sunday, but Chase Briscoe had him covered on Sunday in Xfinity as well. Plus, he called a shot to his wife at least over the phone pre-race, basically saying, hey, I'm going to win this race. And he did for the sixth time this year. Yeah, I mean, obviously, every every race, I'm going as hard as I possibly can, week in and week out. And, you know, I feel like I was pretty dejected after yesterday. And, you know, I told my wife and even told our, our shot guy before the race, I was like, man, I'm, I'm winning this thing. I knew after yesterday, you know, our, our car had a front clip that was bent down over an inch, no splitter, no pan, and we still ran 10th. And I, I knew we had a really good race car. And, you know, truthfully, our backup was even – better than our primary and you know i i don't know i felt like i just really screwed up yesterday and you know i, I just had a lot of weight on my shoulders I, I felt like i really let a lot of people down and um just trying to redeem myself and obviously right now is a uh, silly season and anytime you do something stupid like spinning out by yourself you you want to try to show your worth and uh you know pretty cool to to win from the back in a backup car here so uh yeah i just felt like our car was really good today and um you know, it just makes my job a lot easier when our cars are that good. And uh, today was honestly, I felt like the best car we've had all year long, and it was our backup. So uh, hopefully we can learn something from this car and uh, take it down the road to somewhere and maybe be just as good. Moving on down the list to the truck series, Zane Smith making a serious case for the Rookie of the Year award with Christian Eckes of KBM. Zane earns his second win of the year in trucks, I think his second in the last month or so, because he won his first at Michigan. Remember, he was very emotional on the front stretch with Alan Kavana of Fox Sports. I was curious, being so young as a rookie as he is right now, 
He's going to a lot of these tracks for the first time, be it Michigan, Pocono, Dover, different places, Road America. Um, is he able to lean on anybody at all within GMS racing itself or outside in the truck series garage to glean some information as he's going to these places for the first time? Hey Zane, we were just talking to Brett. He's obviously a former champion and a teammate of yours in the same stable. And he said that you come to him for some advice, but honestly, you kind of keep to yourself. Is there somebody either at GMS or in the rest of the field that you go to and lean on for advice since you're going to a lot of these places for the first time? Um, no, I really haven't uh, relied or asked anyone for any advice. Um, I do need to get better with that. Um, but to be completely honest, I really don't know what to ask because I'm so new, really. Um, practice and qualifying would help a lot this year uh, just with my first year in trucks and these things are um, very different to learn, but a ton of fun to race. Um, but I'm, I'm having the most fun I've ever had uh, racing in my life. So um, GMS is where I'd love to be for uh, years to come. And of course, wrapping things up, we have my beloved Arca Menard Series East. Sam Mayer capitalizes on a flat tire misfortune late in the going for Ty Gibbs, who led the most laps, wins for the second time in a row at Dover with a bum wrist still. And then he pulled double duty and he ran the truck race right after that. But Sam Mayer, he's been on fire this season. He's been the one battling Ty Gibbs for a lot of these race victories, whether it be in Arca East or Arca National. I know that's not what you're supposed to call it, but for lack of a better term, that's what we're going to call it. And I chatted with Sam a little bit on the post-race Zoom about a multitude of topics. <laughs> I like his answer to the second question. <laughs> Take a listen. Hey, Sam, you've had a couple close-knit racing incidents with um, Ty over the past couple of years up front. Now that you guys have a history of racing with each other, and there's a lot of mutual respect that comes along with that, do you kind of know what to anticipate when it comes to racing him, especially for the lead, or are you two still kind of feeling each other out a little bit? Yeah, I mean, this is the first time he's been here, so I really didn't know what to expect. I mean, I kind of did. I'm not going to lie. I, I kind of knew that he was going to run like that, and he was going to be super aggressive because he really doesn't know uh, a place like this is – way more exaggerated than it is at a place like Kentucky just because you're turning so much harder and you're putting so much more force onto the right side of the race car, uh, whereas Kentucky you're kind of more open a little bit and you're almost wide open in one and two at Kentucky. So a place like that is different than a place like this. So obviously going to all these different racetracks that he, he hasn't been to or I even haven't been to, but I have before here. So obviously – uh, I know what to expect, and he really didn't. So that's something that I was able to take advantage of going into today. And I think that's why I ended up being able to pass him is just being able to pack the air like I did. You're two for two at Dover, and last time you were here, you were celebrating your K&N championship last year. Did you have any good memories or flashbacks when you rolled in the doors here or rolled in the gates here about last year? Oh, yeah. I was just like, oh, daddy's home. Hey, uh, man, it was uh, – it had a really good feeling walking over the bridge into the infield today. And uh, I'm glad we could go for two for two because now I have a golden monster and a regular monster. So uh, Miles better watch out. Where are you keeping the trophies? One is on my uh, – one, on, one is on, on like my dresser. And uh, the other one, I really don't know where I'm going to put that, to be honest. Good problem to have. Uh, one more quick one about your wrist. So – did you, you mentioned something about your thumb and there's a lot of pain when you use your thumb uh, in terms of shifting, but now that you're on an oval, is there any particular motions that you use with that specific hand or wrist that are really painful that you're going to try to adjust for the truck race? Yeah. So, I mean, kind of holding the steering wheel, I'm more using my uh, 
pinky and ring finger, uh, whereas usually I kind of hold it like a like an okay sign. And uh, today I obviously can't do that, so uh, I'm putting a lot of pressure on my left hand just because I'm having to tug on the wheel more. Um, but having the banking like like um, like it is is definitely very helpful. Uh, just kind of guiding the car off into the corner, so. That's something that I'm definitely very grateful that it's a weekend like this. So uh, hopefully it holds up for the truck race. I mean, I know it will, uh, but hopefully I hold up for the truck race with my left hand. So uh, it should be pretty fun to watch, and uh, I'm going to have a heck of a time starting P26 or something like that. Super busy weekend of racing at the Monster Mile. Thank you to everybody who was there on site from uh, track president Mike Tatoyan to Michael Lewis, who heads up the communications there, Gary Camp, everybody. I know they're definitely not listening, but if you are, thank you for making everything so hospitable uh, in the Turn 1 Press Box. I enjoyed being on site, as always, on behalf of FrontStretch.com. Hope you guys enjoyed our content over there all weekend long. I'm never going to complain about being at the racetrack, even if I can only stay in one place and not really go anywhere else. It's better to be there than sitting at home. Interview time! I'm very excited to bring you guys this one. It's Brandon Thompson newly named Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion for NASCAR. And we went back and forth for a long while, me and NASCAR, that being, trying to figure out a time to do it. But we finally got it done. I want to give a big shout-out to Pete Stewart of NASCAR for helping coordinate the conversation. And obviously, big thanks to Brandon for making some time in his, I'm, I'm sure, busy schedule for me. But we talked about a lot, Um, everything from getting his start in the sport as an intern at Nashville at the Super Speedway, ironically, coming back now. Some fun tales about his uncle sneaking into the fairgrounds speedway when he was way younger, working his way up in the sport from Rev Racing, and then as an account executive at NASCAR, ultimately getting him to where he is now as the Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion. I wanted to get his take on the the progressive actions and stances that NASCAR had taken in recent weeks and months. Um, I actually reached out right after Brandon was named to this position, but he had a lot of onboarding to do and a lot of work to get done in a short period of time, so we had to wait a little bit. Um, But I still think the questions that he answered and that I presented in terms of Kirk Price kneeling, um, the stances that NASCAR took on the Confederate flag and the national anthem and the peaceful protesting, everything. Um, I think that was still very poignant, and especially coming from Brandon, a black man himself who is of prominent stature in NASCAR. Um, I think he gave some really thoughtful answers there. And we just talked about a lot. We caught up a little bit. Um, I, I was used to seeing him at the racetrack at K&N races every week or so. And since the pandemic started, uh, I hadn't seen him at all, um, maybe at Daytona. But I'm, I think the last time I saw him was at the banquet last year. So it was really good to catch up with Brandon. He's a really kick-ass, cool stand-up guy, does amazing work. And I told him um, during the interview, but I really do mean it, legitimately don't think that there could be anybody else that would make uh, that would thrive in this role better than Brandon Thompson. So I'm really happy for him as a friend and a professional that he got this role. And I'm really happy that you guys are about to listen to our conversation. So without further ado, here's Brandon. Very humbled to have on the newly minted Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion for the National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing. He's somebody that I worked with very closely in my prior lifetime with the k Pro Series. It's Brandon Thompson. Dude, we haven't talked to each other in a long time. We haven't seen each other in a long time. I think the last time that we chatted was at the Touring Series Banquet last year, and I feel like 
we've both lived three separate lifetimes since that happened. But everything's going well on your end. You're safe. You're healthy during this pandemic. You're surviving. Yeah, man, I think you're right. I think you're exactly right. It was the last time we spoke or saw each other. So that seems like, to your point, three years ago. But yeah, man, everybody's safe and healthy on this end, which is uh, as we were kind of talking at the top. It's uh, it, that's all that matters right through here for sure. So all good, and hope the same is true for you and and everybody listening. Absolutely, good to hear. Same same here over here. As as I said, safe and healthy, which is in the grand scheme what matters in this crazy year. Um, Let's go all the way back. We're going to get to everything that surrounded your announcement of your promotion to this new position and how you got there, what you've done in the past few years. But I want to go all the way back to 2003, which is really a (laughs) lifetime ago. That is when you started as an intern at Nashville and you kind of worked your way up from there. I'm curious, how did you hear about the internship program at that time? Because as I said, I mean, that's 17 years ago. (laughs) I... I'm a, I'm closer to 17 than you are, clearly, but that is so, so long ago. How did you hear about the internship program in the first place, and what made you want to get involved? Jeez, Dave, you don't have to age me that way. But, um, no, <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's, it's, no, it's all good, man. It's humbling, honestly, to hear every time I hear or read 17 years in the industry, man. It's uh, hard to believe and extremely humbling, and I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity that I was given back then. And so uh, to answer your question, uh, doing something that my that my parents um, candidly encouraged me not to do growing up, which was being nosy and rummaging on someone else's desk. Um, had a great counselor at Clark Atlanta University who um, was a huge proponent of internships, and uh, was able to build a great rapport with her. And we had a, a you know somewhat of a, a personal relationship where I kind of could do that. So I joke about that, but it really is the truth: is that I saw something on her desk um, about an internship program. The only thing I knew was that I wanted to go back to Nashville after having spent the previous summer in Atlanta um, after my freshman year and wanted to go back home uh, between my sophomore and junior year. So um, saw it, applied for it, didn't expect to get it candidly. I got my my packet in like literally the day that it was due and, you know, kind of thought like, well, it probably won't happen, but uh, they actually ended up extending the deadline, believe it or not. And the rest, as they say, is history. Wow. So how did you find this in the first place? I mean, I'm, I'm, I guess the internet was in its early years at that point, but I'm guessing you found it online, right? No, man. Like it was literally a, uh, yes, I guess initially it was found online, but I literally saw it on paper on a desk is how I, is how I even came to know about it. So, um, there was not even an internet search involved at that point. Um, Yeah, so crazy. I was uh, to, to to date about when that was. I had a MySpace page at the time. If that helps. See, you getting mad at me for dating you? You're dating yourself now. <laughs> <laughs> How knowledgeable and interested were you at that time with NASCAR? Because, and this is going to lead into my next question, but I know you had some familial ties with the Fairgrounds Speedway at that point, and I think your uncle used to do a little sneak in with you getting into the racetrack, but. At that, yeah, it'll be our secret. Don't worry about that. Um, but at that point, I mean, how interested and knowledgeable were you about the sport of NASCAR and the de- knowledge and interest kind of want you to pursue that internship further? Yeah, man, I think so. My knowledge of the sport was, I would say, like a hair above nil, um, but interest for sure. Uh, you know, if I'm being honest, candidly, because it was a summer job college kid, need money, um, got to have one of those internship things they talk about to graduate. So certainly, you know, I'm interested, going to go and 
check it out, see what it's all about. But man, fell in love. Um, oddly enough, uh, the, the moment I fell in love was, it was actually during, during an Indy Lights race, excuse me, um, standing on pit road and the cars fired up, man. And like, I got chills from like literally the top of my head all the way down my leg. I, I don't know what this is, but I want more of it and I love it. And so at that point, uh, Davey, I became extremely interested uh, and just wanting to go all in and learning all that I could and wanted to st- stick around for as, as long as I could. So that was an Indy Lights race. So I assume that you did a little bit more than just NASCAR and stock car things during your internship and in your upbringing, getting introduced to racing. I did. So uh, just in terms of how the calendar at Nashville Super Speedway fell at that point, the, the Indy car race uh, came before the Bush race at the time. And so um, my first Bush race experience was um, Scott Riggs in the in the number 10 Nesquik uh, car. You're dating yourself um, again. Exactly. With the uh, <laughs> him coming to victory lane. So that was, that was my first NASCAR race at, at that point. So no, that, that, that was cool. But yeah, it's just how the calendar fell. But did a lot, man. I worked um, primarily with, with sponsors and, and partners. Uh, you know, they were great in terms of sort of letting me go and, and giving me a lot of leash in order to just to be able to explore and learn. So I uh, managed a lot of promotions with local grocery store chains and I did a lot of sponsor engagement, uh, a lot of media tours, just again, just trying to soak up as much knowledge as I could. And uh, that was also my first introduction into operations. Uh, We did, to your point, a big bike rally uh, there at the Speedway in between weekends. And so I surprised the guys in the operations department when I showed up at, you know, six in the morning um, for a non-NASCAR event, given that I was a NASCAR intern and um, you know, just learned a lot about the operational space as well. That's really cool. I, I would have paid to see you show up at 6 a.m. and see everybody's face saying, wow, this guy's going the extra mile, isn't he? Um, yeah, th- yeah. The, the, the guys at the time were uh, were not as nice as you were, Davey, about it. They gave me a lot of crap, but it was good. It was all in good fun. Uh, it ended up ended up uh, having a, a good relationship with those guys. They were They were good people. That's good to hear. So I don't want to get you in too much trouble, so we can keep it a secret. Nobody's listening. But tell me about when you were younger and what your uncle wound up doing to help you sneak into the fairgrounds, because I, I got to hear this story. <laughs> it's funny, man. So it actually wasn't me. So my uh, my grandmother uh, grew up literally right, I mean, probably less than three miles. You can, uh, from where my grandmother's house is, you can hear uh, the race cars from the fairgrounds when they're going around. And so... Um, he, uh, my oldest uncle and my youngest uncle, um, would sneak under the fence after the race started. Uh, they had a spot that they would go in on the back stretch there and they would sneak, you know, sneak into the racetrack once they knew the security guards were off watching the races themselves. And so, um, I played football uh, for my uncle uh, and I, I, we talk about this all the time. Never once mentioned anything about that story. One, to your point, it's a great story Two, um, about NASCAR, you know, and so we'd laugh and joke about that a lot. But that same uncle, uh, as I was torn uh, coming out of college between uh, continuing with the job that I had secured at Target in their management training program. No shade to Target. I love Target um, (laughs) and coming to NASCAR, um, you know he asked me a very simple question and it's one that I'm, I'm eternally grateful for. He said, do you think it's more likely that you will be able to uh, go to NASCAR? And if that doesn't work out, go back and work for target or if target doesn't work out to go back and work for NASCAR. And um, obviously the answer to that question was simple. It's a once in a lifetime opportunity. I felt like, and um, still here, they haven't been able to kick me out yet. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I, I like that piece of advice too. It's worse to live by. So when you were, at Nashville, being an intern, um, 
correct me if I'm wrong, but you're in college, so you're like what, 19, 20, 21 years old doing all this too? 1903 uh, uh, was that was my first that was my first uh, internship. I guess, well, I guess 20. Take it, yeah, so I was 20 uh, doing that. Uh, so yeah, 20 years old, man. Was that kind of like a normal thing for your friends that were around your age, just getting internships <laughs> and doing the deal, or was were you kind of on the other side of things when? You seem to be ahead of the game. You saw where this industry was going and you had it mapped out of what you wanted to do. Were your friends envious of you in that respect? No, I think uh, so. I think all people were doing internships at the time, right? Just, you know, sophomore year is about the time where you got to start doing mm-hmm. that stuff. And certain, you know, certain schools, different curriculum, some require it for college credit and some don't. But, um, you know, Clark Atlanta was really was really big on internships and it, and they were aside from the fact that you know it was it was part of your college credit but so I wasn't the only one doing an internship I can't promise you I was the only one doing an internship in NASCAR I and probably one of very few doing something in sports and so uh, yeah the, it, it garnered me a certain amount of attention um, on campus uh, from students and professors alike I think um, you know obviously it's an it's an unlikely uh, marriage you know for for a student at an HBCU to to be interning at NASCAR so I obviously got a lot of questions about that but mm-hmm. uh, I don't know David to your point if I saw I can actually, I can tell you, I didn't see this happening uh, necessarily, but I was, I was extremely intrigued uh, primarily because I'm a little bit of a contrarian and it's like, everyone's doing the other thing, right? And let's, let's see how this works. It's something different. And it's an opportunity for me to kind of uh, chart my own path and, and, and do something different. So that's what, that's really what encouraged me to stick with it. Brandon Thompson, the contrarian. I like that. We got to like print that on a t-shirt <laughs> or something and start selling. What do you say? let's do it let's do it i'll give you i'll give you a cut good i'll get some royalties thank you for (laughs) that um so i believe you went from there and then you became a senior account executive at nascar correct me if i'm wrong on that but i think at that point for you was that kind of a thing to get your foot in the door to maybe get to where you ultimately wanted to go or was that more so i'm passionate about this sport i'm passionate about this company this is the role that i want to be in at this time yeah, man, only because I don't know who's listening, we can't skip steps. So I was just a regular account executive before being a senior account executive um, when I started. That. But yeah, <laughs> but no, man, uh, to your point, yeah, I think it was just my, it was my entry point into the sport full time, you know, and um, again, I didn't necessarily have a plan um, about where things would go or whatever else. But again, I, I knew I loved the sport. I wanted to be around it. I was passionate about the sport itself. I was passionate about the people and the stories um, that surrounded it, man. And the more I heard those stories and were able to connect that to people that I saw at the racetrack, uh, really just endeared me uh, even more uh, to the sport. So, yeah, that was uh, that job was was huge for me, and just in terms of of learning about the sport, being exposed to a lot of people, and just understanding candidly how the industry works. For sure. Yeah. Every step you go along the way. I mean, I'm 24 and I'm understanding more and more every day. I'm making mistakes. I'm learning. I'm I'm, I'm building connections, yeah. all that type of stuff. And then after that, I believe you went to Rev Racing for a little bit. I feel like it was cool at that point to maybe come full circle because you started out as an intern with the internship program and Rev Racing with the Drive for Diversity. It feels like that kind of marriage came full circle for you. Did you feel that way? I did, man. And again, I, I, I truly, I, I count myself fortunate and blessed to be able to, because every step along the journey has really prepared me for, for the next step. And so spending that time at Rev was, 
again, it was invaluable. Just understanding how a team at that level worked, number one, uh, but also understanding the importance and, and gaining an appreciation for grassroots racing, right? I, you know, I came in when I started at NASCAR, which is maybe a little bit atypical. I came in straight working for the National Series. And so, I, you know, first race I ever worked was a cup race. So um, seeing that and then being able to go full time and, and work again at, the, at, the, at that time, the K&N level, um, and really understanding its importance to the sport and understanding that as a feeder system, understanding that uh, as, as the grassroots, that really is the foundation to, to everything else that we've done um, and that we do on a daily basis was was very important. And getting to work alongside Max Siegel there and, you know, I got to meet uh, Bubba and his family for the first time, Sergio Pena, Ryan Gifford, like some of these names um, and they got to know. And then, a freaking legend, Andy Santeri, you kidding me? Like, I, I mean, that was, it was huge. So it, it was great to be able to work alongside that cast for sure. I feel like that gives you a little bit of an upper hand in the sense of you know what it's like in the quote-unquote trenches, so to speak, because the K&N level now, Arca East and West, of course, that's kind of the entry level where all the drivers start. But when you look at the top brass, you may not always, or at least the average fan may look from the outside and think, Oh, uh, there's just the big wigs and the head honchos for the Cup Series and Xfinity and trucks, but K&N and Arco's where the where the bread is buttered, so to speak. I mean, that is where the teams are working on the cars out of a small trailer, not a big semi. That is where you go to the local short tracks where the fans show up, and that is their livelihood. And I think you working there for almost what a decade or so in that kind of respect of things that kind of gives you an upper hand I feel because I've worked with you so closely when it comes to that stuff into the role that you're in now because you understand how this business works more and more well I appreciate you saying that Davey and I uh, I really do and I, I do think it's important um I, I think have, having a, a breadth of understanding again about how the sport works what makes the sport go um and, you know even from the weekly series level on up I mean when, when we look at what we're trying to do on the on diversity and inclusion front it's not just about cup. It's about the entire sport from, from, yeah. from, you know, Bowman gray up to Daytona road course, right? Like it, it's gotta be everything and, and all points in between. So um, yeah, I, I do feel like that has helped, uh, you know, as we go on this journey, but then even going back to your point, David, when we worked together on the, on the touring series side, right? Like um, that experience at Rev really made me understand and appreciate. And I think a lot of the team owners uh, that we work with, uh, grew to have an appreciation for that as well. It's like, you know, I've been there. I've worked there. Um, I've, I've essentially, whoever, you know, Bill McAnally or, uh, uh, you know, Mike Smermiglio on the modified side or, you know, whoever I was talking to, I worked for that guy um, essentially and working and working with Rev and working over there with Max. And so I think they grew to understand that. I really think it helped me understand where they were coming from about a lot of the challenges that they were facing. So let's talk a little bit more about the role specifically, which was managing director of the touring series. And I think you had that role for four or so years. Can, can you run me through your daily operations and what you really did as the manager directing of the touring series and how much you enjoyed that? Because I know seeing you at certain racetracks every week, whether it was at a K&N East race, a K&N West race, or a modified race, even sometimes up in Canada for the Pinty series, and I'm sure you got down to Mexico, maybe even Europe. Who knows? I mean, how did you enjoy that? Yeah. <laughs> Man, I loved it. And 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 you're right, Davey. I, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to hit all those places that you mentioned. And, um, man, just I'll start with Europe. You know, in the, in the couple of years I got to work with that series, 
being out, being able to be in that garage, uh, and if you closed your eyes and closed your ears, because I think they speak like 16 different languages or something like that over there in that garage. Um, and so I shouldn't say close your eyes. If you closed your ears and just watched, there's no difference. Absolutely no difference. You see people working together. It's absolutely grassroots racing. It's no different than being in a 50 series garage or being in a can in or um, excuse me, Arca, a Menard series garage, um, modify it's all the same right people helping people there's a ton of passion there's you know people aren't doing it to get rich by any stretch uh and there's some 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 sure enough talent there at uh, at that level as well the same's true uh you know down in mexico great passion the the fans are i mean absolutely rabid up down there and i think that again that extends all the way up to canada we talk about the quebec fans and uh the, the fans in ontario and across canada like the, the passion that you see for stock car racing uh, around the world is is incredible uh, and being able to see that obviously even being you know here domestically working with the the arca series and the, and the east and west and, and the mods i mean a, a great bunch of people I learned a lot met a, um and and i Again, eternally grateful for that opportunity. Some good folks. I would have never met you if it wasn't for that, man. That's right. Your life would be infinitely worse if you didn't meet me. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I try to preach to people, too, because for every Jimmy Johnson, Kevin Harvick, Denny Hamlin, there's an Andrew Ranger, an LP Dumoulin. There's a Patrick yeah. Emmering. There's a yeah. uh, Ruben Garcia Jr. There's an Alon Day. You know what I mean? There's so many undiscovered mainstream-wise talented race car drivers across the world not just across america not just across the continent but across the world and it was really cool that you got able to see that you were able to see that give me a quick answer i know i'm putting you on the spot but what was your favorite racetrack that you've been to and in, in your role as the touring series director did you have a favorite venue man that is tough you put you are putting me on the spot i'd say this i'd say bowman gray is a track that you you got to go to period point blank in um i do i haven't been yeah i you, you gotta go and i won't i have a secret when i go that i won't i won't tell and i guess now that i'm off that side of the business i can't i go up put a ball cap on i sit in the corner in the beer garden and just watch uh I, you know i did, didn't want anyone to know i was there because i didn't want to hear anything about you know the fight that was likely going going to ensue but <laughs> um it, it's a great time man if you're looking for uh, again, passionate fans, a great group of diverse fans there as well. That's one thing I don't think people understand. You know, it's, it's a great history. I've never been on the campus of Winston-Salem State. And the connection that the racetrack has to the school uh, and all they've done to kind of help each other, right? The school to the racetrack, the racetrack to the school is great. Um, you know, even down to the little nuances, like as you go through Bowman Gray season, the later it gets, the more strict they become about driving across the football field because, you know, football <laughs> season is coming up. So uh, just those nuances are pretty cool. But that's one place I would say that stands out. If true, uh, authentic short track racing uh, with a great group of fans uh, and, a great, and a great passionate bunch of drivers, um, it, it, it really doesn't get any better than that. And if you can enjoy that race, you can go anywhere. See, you could have said somewhere in Italy, the Netherlands, Valencia, you know, somewhere in beautiful Canada or Mexico, but no, we chose Bowman Gray. Yeah. That is a racer's racer right there, Brandon. Good answer. <laughs> <laughs> so now you're the VP of diversity and inclusion. Um, that is a very interesting title, and I'm curious as to what your day-to-day -day operations have been so far with that. But before we get into the minutia with that specific question, how did that specific position come up? Like, 
did NASCAR approach you with this? Did you approach them with this? Was it more so of a convergence of ideas? How did this whole thing start? Man, the, the, the great thing about this is that these conversations about diversity and inclusion didn't just start on June 1st, um, you know, when we put the first statement out or whatever the case was there in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, this conversation has been going on for years. As long as I've been in around the sport, I've heard it. And so that, that that's the first thing. In terms of this job in particular, I think it, you know, the discussions around, you know, water cooler talk, you hear that and they're looking, uh, uh, executive leadership is looking to go down this road for this particular position. Uh, and that, that conversation at this at this point, as we talk today, is probably about uh, a year and a half to two years old, I guess, uh, somewhere in that range. And so, okay. uh, you know, you, like I said, you hear the water cooler talk and you, uh, you know, if I say I didn't think about it as a possibility and something I might want to pursue, you know, I'd, I'd be telling you a tale. But look, man, I was... I was good. You know, we were just starting this thing with ARCA. We had onboarded them. We were building a lot of momentum with the modified tour. Um, I was happy. I was, I was good doing what I was doing. Um, and then I think the, uh, as we sort of started to navigate 2020, obviously some things kind of got put on the back burner given COVID and, and everything like that. But um, yeah, man, that's, that's kind of how it, how it, how it started in terms of that process. Like I said, it's, it's been an ongoing conversation for a while and uh, excited to be here. That's for sure. And you're also the first graduate of the Drive for Diversity program to join the executive team, which I'm sure has to be an incredible point of pride for you. And frankly, me, knowing you how I've known you for the past four years, I was really happy on a friendship level that you got this opportunity as well. So that has to be really, really cool that you are the first to uh, be in that position and have that accomplishment. So congratulations on that. Well, man, I, I appreciate you saying that, Davey. But look, we've got to do better. I, I shouldn't be the I shouldn't be the only one, um, and and won't be. There's there's a lot of good sure. uh, graduates, quality uh, quality people who are passionate about this sport, um, who who could have easily been in this position um, to be the first. Um, you know, it, 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 it's my name on it, but I bring a lot of folks with me. Um, you know, in, in in sitting here, and so I think I'm the first, but I certainly won't be the last. And I know that two mentors of yours, Phil Horton, who's a pit crew coach, and Max Siegel, who you worked with over at Rev, I know they've been two very instrumental people in your career. Can you tell me a little bit about how they've been there for you throughout your career and your trajectory and what they've done specifically for you, whether it's just being there as an ear uh, when you need to vent about something or putting in a good word when you're trying to get somewhere you need to go or just helping you talk to the right people and giving you advice? I mean, I'm sure that their mentorship has to be invaluable as well for you. Yeah, all of that that you mentioned uh, coming from those from those guys you know, has been the case and hold true. Um, you know, I, I I call Phil Uncle Phil. Uh, been been knowing him since my since my first day there at Rev, and that. actually Love going that. back a little bit before that. But I I call him that just because he's he's been uh, sort of that 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 constant, right? Um, you know, he he was there every day at Rev, and we had a lot of good conversation. We we're able to exchange a lot of ideas. He was able to give me a lot of perspective based on his experience, not only in the sport. Uh, but just as a man, you know, candidly and, and how he got to this position in the sport and Max, you know, obviously, um, I mean, he's, he's worked with a lot of high profile folks, has worked with a lot of hope, uh, a lot of high profile cases. And um, obviously working at DEI is no small feat in and of itself. And just the controversy that he kind of had to navigate there. And just, again, hearing that perspective has been great. Um, but, you know, internal mentors as well. I, I think when we look at, you know, look at NASCAR, whether it's, you know, Jim Cassidy is no longer here, or Steve O'Donnell, and now, you know, Jill Gregory, Steve Phelps, uh, Wayne Alton had, a, had an immense uh, effect 
uh, on me coming up and learning and navigating the sport. So uh, the support I've received, man, um, over the years is is incredible, and I wouldn't be out, I wouldn't be here without without all of it because it's all it's all mattered. I got a couple more for you, and I know that we're on a little time crunch, but this is this one is a really important question. Let's go back a couple months to Atlanta slash Martinsville slash Talladega. Um, the yeah. progressive actions that were taken in a five day span. NASCAR addressed racial inequality head on. The driver video came out um, when we were at Atlanta. Kirk Price yeah. takes a knee for the anthem. Bubble wore the Black Lives Matter shirt. NASCAR partners with an LGBTQ organization. That straight up blew me away in a positive way, obviously. They changed the anthem policy. Bubba had Black Lives Matter on his car. The Confederate flag was banned. This all happened so quickly. I'm curious for you, being an African-American in the position that you're in, how did all of that make you feel? Man, I'm, I'm candidly, I'm just catching my breath probably a couple of weeks ago uh, coming off, come, coming off of all that, but I don't blame uh, it was a lot, but, all, but, all, but all good stuff, man. I, I think, um, you know, as I said before, we didn't just find religion on June 1st and you're right. Uh, the June 1st to June 10th. Wow. All right. A, a lot happened. Uh, and then you, like you said, you add the, the other things on top of that, but it was good. And I think, um, you know, it, it was an important step, obviously for the, you know, that's an understatement and Captain Obvious at the same time there, but um, a huge step and a step that I think is going to open a lot of doors for the sport, for the industry uh, and for the fans, candidly, you know, I think, you know, fans like being around other fans and there's a lot of fans that I know who, you know, were uncomfortable coming to the racetrack or, you know, had trepidation. Or they only wanted to stay in this particular area, this particular section. And, um, you know, just that limits everyone, you know, my experiences at racetracks have been, um, have been different, not only because I've worked there and I, I understand that, you know, that that comes with a difference, but I've, again, I, I, I go to racetracks and, you know, inconspicuously on purpose, uh, candidly, um, a lot of times and people who don't know who I am, you know, just the exchange of, of, of pleasantries and, and those conversations and them, hey, if you've, you know, brought friends to the racetrack and we've forgotten lighters and sitting there arguing amongst ourselves about whose fault it was that we forgot the lighter and you're hearing a, a random group of fans say, hey, anything over here you can have. Um, and people don't get to experience that because of the flag and some other things, some of the stigmas that have, uh, have followed the sport uh, because they don't believe those things to be true. And so I'm excited now that, that that sort of that elephant in the room is gone. And, you know, hopefully we can turn a page and, and get more folks out to the tracks so they can experience the same thing. And, and candidly, so some of my current fans can, can understand that at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is a passion for stock cars going 200 miles an hour. At the end of the day, that's really all that matters. If you love racing, we want you here, period. Could not have said it better myself. Let's also put that on a T-shirt, please. I'll buy it in bulk. Um, <laughs> I think your pinned tweet on Twitter still is the picture of a young girl wearing a Bubba Wallace shirt, and it says the significance of Bubba Wallace in one picture. Yeah. I think about that a lot, considering what we've seen in the past couple months that's gone on. I mean, for goodness sake, I woke up this morning, and I see Bubba – had a GQ shoot like that's amazing. That's crazy, man. I can't wait. I can't wait to text him. What 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 is that? Now he's GQ. He's got a horse and all this other kind of stuff. I'm gonna give him a rash of crap about that as soon as we hang up. No, man. But I'm I'm happy for him. Uh, and 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 he he deserves all the attention that he's that he's getting. Not only because of his talent, um, first and foremost, but because of the stand and the leadership that he's taking. You know, quickly on that, I'll say that when we look at leaders, uh, uh, you know, generationally throughout the sports history. Um, you know, whether it's Dale Earnhardt back in the day and we all know how that was and, you know, um, 
once he was no longer with us, uh, you know, whether it was Rusty and then sort of that evolving into Tony and then, you know, Jimmy Johnson as, as he's looking to, uh, to move into retirement. Um, yep. Bubba has taken a similar role, and I, I want to make sure for the core fans listening out there, I'm not comparing Bubba to Dale Earnhardt um, in, in the sense that, you know, he's, he's got a lot of experience and a lot of living to do to get to that point. But uh, the significance of the leadership role that he's taken in, in this area, again, really can't be understated. But um, excited for him and all the attention that he's getting uh, for sure. Please let me know what he says to that text because I had no idea. He yeah. Had like that. <laughs> I'm going right. to do it. I'm absolutely going to do it. Please, please do. Um, I got to end with a fun question. I had no idea that you are a collector of vinyl records. How did that start? Man, you, you, speaking of vinyl records, you've dug through some crates, Davey. I'm, I'm impressed. Hey, um, I do my research, Brandon. You should know that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I, I am a huge fan of, of vinyl records. Uh, it started um, somewhat unfortunately when my grandmother passed away. Um, she had a lot of vinyl records and, you know, just kind of sitting, sitting around the house and, uh, got a chance to comb through some of them, took a batch, uh, back home, um, with no record player. <laughs> so that I had to go buy one. Uh, so did that. And it was, you know, obviously like most things you start cheap cause you just want to get it. And, uh, the crackle of the records and the, you know, after I did some research on the sound quality and how it was, you know, what made a vinyl record, a vinyl record, um, eventually upgraded uh, my, my record system uh, and I've recently upgraded again. I will warn anyone who's looking to get into this. It is a very expensive hobby. Be very, very careful. Um, it will run through your pockets very quick. Um, Spotify is much cheaper at $10 a month uh, for the premium package. Um, I was looking at a record the other day and I think I paid 30 bucks for a single, a single record, but it, look, as far as I'm concerned, it's worth it, the sound quality. And I just, I, I love just being able to do that. the way I relax, but, um, yes. So I, I, I do. And if you don't mind, Davian, I don't know if we can go back and edit this. I realized that I didn't, compl- I didn't finish the thought got off talking about Bubba and his GQ shoot about the picture of the, of the young girl, um, on, on Twitter. Quickly, what I'd say is that the reason I, I captioned that photo the way I did is because when I saw that, here you have a young black girl at the racetrack, not watching on TV. She's there um, at the racetrack. So when we talk about new fans, younger fans, there's that, right? But the shirt that she's wearing is, and listen, the, the trademark folks and our trademark lawyers here probably don't love this, but you know, it has Bubba's name in it. And to so many people, to to that young girl, Bubba Wallace is NASCAR, right? And so when you really think about that on, on, a, on a little bit of a deeper level, um, people like to be able to see themselves represented in whatever it is that they do. And I think representation and exposure is huge. And so, um, you know, w- w- when you talk about the, uh, the wealth of drivers and stuff that we have around the world, they all had to be exposed to the sport. You know, um, I remember, you know, all the hoopla around Juan Pablo coming in, but just think about what he brought to the sport. Think about what Danica Patrick brought to the sport. These people Mm -hmm. had to be exposed to racing in some way, shape or form in order for us to experience their talent and the things that they, um, you know, that they brought. So anyway, uh, I I realize I didn't touch on that, but it's important and and, and something that I'll leave pinned up there for a while because it's, it's, it's pretty significant. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you could see it, but I literally got goosebumps when you were talking about that. It's <laughs> it's unbelievable because e- even so, I mean, one of my best friends is gay. He doesn't follow NASCAR that often, but when I told him that NASCAR partnered with an LGBTQ organization, he was blown away, and frankly, so was I. And 
a couple of my African-American friends as well, they are texting me. They're like, yo, what's going on with Bubba? They're really banning the flag. All this stuff is happening. And the fact that NASCAR is on the right side of history, that that is what I think should be taken away from everything that we've seen in the past couple months. And, and the fact that Bubba is leading the charge, I couldn't really think of a better guy to do it. And same thing with you, man. You got promoted at the right time. I couldn't think of a better person. And I know a couple people said that on social media when the promotion was announced, but seriously, legitimately could not think of a better person to be in this role. So you're already killing the game. You're going to continue killing the game. I really appreciate you taking the time today out of your busy schedule. And hopefully, I don't know when or where, but maybe we'll be able to reunite at the racetrack sometime soon. We need to do it, man, because I'm starting to get in. I'm starting to, like, convulse. I think I'm going to try to uh, sneak down to Daytona uh, next week. I hope uh, my it. boss isn't walking, no. But I think we, we've got a couple <laughs> good meetings planned down there with uh, with Bethune-Cookman. And so we're excited about that. But, uh, man, I need to. I need some racing. I need to hear it. So, no, absolutely. Let's, let's do that quickly. Good stuff. Yeah, I'm actually headed to Dover this weekend. I'll be quarantined to the Turn 1 press box, but I will hear the racing. I will feel the racing, and that is all I need for the time being. So, It'll get my fix in. Make sure you sneak in yes. Daytona just like your uncle did to the fairgrounds. All right. It's in the family. <laughs> if I can find my hard car, hopefully I won't have to do that. But yes, I- I'm willing to do that if that's what it comes to. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah. I got to find my hard <laughs> car too. But um, Brandon, this has been fun, man. I-, I really thank you for the time and it's really appreciated. So thank you. Likewise. Thank you, David, for having me. And we're back. Hope you guys enjoyed our chat with BT. He's one of the good guys, man. I'm telling you. Um, you can check out my Twitter for his um, Twitter handle. I think it's B underscore Thompson 36, maybe. But um, he's really cool. He's a funny follow on Twitter, too. I, he interacts sometimes with this HBCU fam. Um, and he always has some funny, poignant tweets about NASCAR, other sports going on, um, or just the current events. He, he's a great guy, great Twitter follow, and I'm really appreciative of his time. So thank you again to Brandon, to Pete Stewart, everybody at NASCAR for helping coordinate that conversation. It was really fun. Let's briefly preview this upcoming weekend's races at Daytona International Speedway, the regular season finale for the Cup Series. Also, gateway this weekend for the trucks, ARCA, and IndyCar, guys and gals. Daytona. Nobody knows what the hell to expect. I sure don't. Playoff standings, here's the update. Matt Benedetto is 15th. He is plus 9 on the cutoff. William Byron is 16th. He's the last spot in right now. He is plus four of the cutoff. Jimmy Johnson is the first driver out, minus four of the cutoff. So you do the math. If Jimmy finishes four or five spots ahead of Byron, uh, omitting stage points, of course, he's in. If Benedetto gets in a wreck, he's probably out. And if anybody else that I didn't mention, whether that be someone like Eric Jones, Tyler Reddick, Bubba Wallace, or even, yes, I know I'm saying this, <laughs> Quinn Huff, which is not going to happen, Justin Haley again, um, that's probably not going to happen, though, because he's not running for full points. Michael McDowell, that's entirely possible. John Hunter Nemechek, like literally any of these guys. Ryan Newman, could you imagine that story? Insane. Chris Busher's really good on super speedways. If any of those guys were to go up there and take the win, that means that Jimmy Johnson, even if he were to point his way into 16th, he'd be out. So you got to, you got to, if you're Jimmy, Byron, or Benedetto you got to race up front and race for stage points, race for the win, because it's going to do you no good to hang around in the back trying to avoid a wreck when you're probably going to get involved in one anyway. I just don't think that that's going to work out for them. But if you're Bubba Wallace, if you're Corey LaJoy, if you're Michael McDowell, John Hunter Dimacek, what have you, run around in the back. Wait for them to wreck up front because you know Stenhouse Jr. is going to be hella aggressive up there. Logano's going to be blocking 
Byron Johnson and DeBenedetto, they're going to be getting all they can for stage points. So ride around in the back, let them wreck, do their thing, and then try to win at the end. Um, but now that I said all that, it's probably going to be another Hamlin and Harvick show <laughs> coming down to the stretch. Who knows, though? Uh, I'm I'm real excited for that, man. Coke Zero Sugar 400, Saturday, 7 p.m., NBC, Saturday Night Lights. I can't wait. Um, Xfinity, the regular season does not end this week, but it is one of the best races of the year. The Wawa 250, that's on Friday night as well from Daytona. I think Justin Haley's a defending winner. I may be wrong on that. But um, regardless, Xfinity guys put on a, a whale of a show as well. And again, Trucks and Arca at Gateway this weekend. It's not Gateway Motorsports Park. It's Worldwide Technology Raceway at Gateway. And in honor of the Arca Menard Series going to Gateway, let's recite the race name of the k Pro Series East-West Combo Race that I covered last year. Let's see if I can remember it. Um, right, okay, here it was. The Monaco Cocktails Gateway Classic 125 presented by the West Coast Stock Car Hall of Fame at Worldwide Technology Raceway at Gateway. That's a freaking mouthful. Like 22 syllables, whatever it is. Whew, yeah, I know, right? But catch all the action this week. Truck races on Fox, Fox Sports 1. That should be. IndyCar race will be on NBCSN, I assume. Cup race on NBC. Xfinity race, NBCSN. ARCA race on Track Pass. Man, we had six races this past week plus the Indy 500. And we got another busy weekend of race in action. I can't wait. Look nuts of the week. Cue that funky music, white boy. Lot of lug nut penalties this week. Chris Gapart on Denny Hamlin's car. Justin Alexander on Austin Dillon's car. Chris Gale on Eric Jones's car. Greg Irwin on Matt Benedetto's car. Jason Ratcliffe on Christopher Bell's car. Paul Wolf on Brad Keselowski's car. All fine $10,000 for a loose lug nut after the races on Saturday and Sunday. And in Xfinity, Brian Wilson on Austin Sindrich's 22. Buddy Sisko on Tommy Joe Martin's 44, and Dave Rogers on Riley Herbst's 18. They were fined $5,000. Oof, that's a lot of money out of the pocket. Let's see, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 65, 70. That's $75,000 out of their pockets for loose lug nuts. Oh, good Lord, can't believe that. Steve Phelps, who of course is the president of NASCAR, he was named to the NASCAR Board of Directors. He joins CEO and Chairman Jim France, Executive Chair Lisa France Kennedy, Senior Advisor Mike Helton, or as I like to call him, Grand Poobah and Mr. Mustache, and Chief Legal Officer Gary Crotty. So congratulations to Mr. Phelps for getting named on the prestigious board. And Eric Moses, he has been named the Nashville Super Speedway Track President. He's the first black man to hold that position in NASCAR history. I actually was able to speak with him at Dover, as well as Mike Petoyan, I didn't put that audio in here because it was a little bit of a longer conversation, and hopefully, maybe by the time you're listening to this, an article will be written up on Front Stretch detailing our conversation. If not, it should be up shortly, uh, and I may throw his audio in next week, but really cool dude. He's actually from the D.C. area. He lives in D.C., and he just came from the XFL with the D.C. Defenders, and he told me, basically, he came to Dover last fall to try to get some tailgating tips for the Defenders. They were first in terms of um, social media and consumer engagement online. So he knows how to run franchises, and, and he was pretty big in the D.C. sports media landscape. So I think Nashville got a pretty good hire there. And I actually asked Mike Detoyan what he would say to those people that say, well, it's pretty convenient timing that you're hiring the first black track president now in the midst of all the social unrest in the country and Bubba Wallace's outspokenness in NASCAR. And he shot me straight. He said, look, I get why people would think that way. 
But when you look at this guy's credentials and his resume, it was a no-brainer why we chose him, and that wasn't because of the color of his skin, his religion, his gender, sex, anything. It was because he's damn good at what he does, and we think that he's going to be a good asset to our team at Dover and at Nashville Super Speedway. So congrats to Eric Moses. Pretty cool stuff going on down there. That'll wrap things up for this milestone episode 70 of Victory Lane 2.0. Hope you guys enjoyed the J.D. McDuffie episode and our conversation with Brandon Thompson. Really was thrilled to have him on. and He's been a good friend to me professionally and personally, so I'm glad that he was able to hop on the pod and, and chat for a little bit. If you like what you heard, if you like Brandon, please leave a rating and a review. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Usually wherever you get your podcasts, we can be found there. And if we're not there, drop me a line, let me know, and I'll try to fix that problem and rectify it for you. Also on SoundCloud, of course, obviously my wonderful hosting platform. We'll be back next week for episode 71. I have a feeling that's going to be the Bobby Isaac episode. Do I know who we're going to have on yet? Nope, but it'll be fun. I think it'll be fun, and we'll, we'll preview the playoffs. That will be fun as well. So thank you guys for listening. Hope you enjoyed the racing action this weekend at Indianapolis and Dover. Enjoy this weekend in Daytona. Stay safe, stay inside, keep washing those hands, and I'll talk to you guys on the flip side.